Hello and welcome to the Companies and Markets show. My name is Alex Newman. I'm the podcast editor. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Thompson, our stockbooking guru, Deputy Companies Editor Mark Robinson, who's going to be talking about defence companies in a week where the possibility of military conflict seems to be looming large. And our news editor, Emma Powell, who will be speaking about the banks, seeing as we have the big four having reported in this half-year results season. Let's get to it. Simon, let's start with you. Thanks very much for joining us here in the studio this week. In your column this week, you've alerted our readers to a few high-yield companies on your watch list, which I'd like to come on to. But before that, you've given your view on interest rates, and your thoughts are that Bank of England no longer justified uh, in keeping them this low. What's your argument? base rate was cut to 0.25% last summer after the EU referendum. It was an emergency cut to basically prop up confidence, prop up the economy. Well, the economy doesn't need propping up. It was one of the fastest growing economies in the world last year. Even the Bank of England's forecast for 2017-2018 point to GDP growth of 17 1.6% respectively. Unemployment levels, well, they're at record levels. Unemployment rate, 4.5%. That's the lowest level since 1975. Um, Credit markets, well, they're booming. 10% growth in unsecured lending in the year to uh, June. Again, Bank of England figures for that. These are signs of health of the economy, not weakness. This is not an economy that needs an emergency cut maintained. If the economy can't withstand rate rises now, then when will it? Right. This week, we had the 10-year anniversary of the credit crunch. We've been asking this question for nearly 10 years as well. I mean, do you you see rates lifting at all in the near time? Or or are you calling the bluff of the the Bank of England uh, for later this year? Well, I mean, the Bank of England sort of I mean, they contradicted themselves. On the one hand, they said, no, we'll keep rates stable for now. And then on the other hand, they said, well, actually, the market expectations for future rates are possibly on the low side. So they're saying, yes, we will actually increase rates, but quicker than you think, but not at the moment. So, I mean, they're sending out some very mixed signals, to be honest. And uh, as I said, um, there's no justification at the moment for a 0.25% base rate, um, None whatsoever. But as, uh, as long as it's low, I mean, there's a few sectors of the of, the, uh, of equity markets which are going to do pretty well. Uh, one of them being commercial property. I mean, you've you've flagged uh, one of the stocks you, you you follow this week, Palace Capital. Can you talk us through their their prospects uh, at the moment and why you picked up on them again this week? I put the readers into the stock last autumn at three pounds thirty. The price now in the market is three pounds eighty or thereabouts. Um, discount 16 percent net asset value. Whopping 5% dividend yields. That dividend yield is paid out of rental income, so they're not reliant on property sales in order to pay the dividends. Uh, lowly geared balance sheet, gearing is way under 50% of the property value, um, portfolio value. Um, shrewd guys run this. A guy called Neil Sinclair, who I first came across about 14 years ago, um, a company called Tops Estates, which was eventually bought, bought out. He was a director there. Um, He's actually doubled net asset value per share at this company over the last four years. And I've been looking at some of the deals they've been doing recently, and valuations are going to go up. Um, an office block they bought last summer in Manchester, um, passing rents, £11.50 to £14 a square foot. There's some vacant space. They were smart. They went in, refurbished the space, refurbished the entrance hall, made it you know all look nice, and they've just let out a chunk of the space, not for £11.50 or £14 a square foot, but well over £17 a square foot, and that will feed through to valuations. 
Um, they've got a planning application in York. Well, I know the York property market quite well. One of my companies, Henry Burtz, um, is involved in the development of the former Terry's Orange Chocolate Factory there. Okay. And, um, oh, it's going sweet. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they've sold lots of flats between 174000 and 750000 pounds. They'll all be sold by the end of this year. And... Uh, but what interests me with Palace Capital is that they've got a building just down from the railway station in York. It's uh, a 1960s office building, 103,000 square feet, and they've got a planning application in for 127 flats, um, about 34,000 square feet of offices, some car parking as well. Well, if they can get anything like the results for the Terry's uh, chocolate factory... Well, the £15 million carrying value in the accounts and that's that size, you could increase dramatically with planning consent. And that's, that's just two deals. Another deal they've done this week is so smart. Mm. In Newcastle, they've bought £20 million worth of commercial properties, including a Durian's budget hotel, all let out. Um, they paid... Twenty million pounds. They borrowed eleven and a half million pounds. Put eight and a half million pounds of their own cash down. Took out a really cheap loan because you can borrow very cheaply with Bank of England base rate on the floor and uh, fixed rates very very affordable at the moment. They took out a loan, so the net contribution after paying the debt payments is one point four million pounds a year, or seven percent of the purchase price. Their return on equity is sixteen percent. Within six years, they'll have recovered all their equity. That's smart. Right. You said these are canny operators in the market. I mean, is, is that the lead indicator when you're looking at commercial property uh, companies that you, you want to follow the people who you know have got a good track record rather than just the the broader uh, world of valuations out there for commercial property? Oh, absolutely. It's known to the people. Um, you know, some property mark, uh, companies are trading on very deep discounts. There's a reason for it. People either don't believe they can actually increase valuations, the quality of the stock may not be great, but ultimately it's the management leading the company. They're, they're the ones that deliver. And if they're incentivised and if they've got a track record, and as I said, the guys behind Palace Capital have got a cracking track record, um, it's worth following. And, you know, 5% dividend yield, that's decent enough, you know, for an income investor as well. Prospects of capital growth. Good stuff. Some of the last company I, I, I wanted to pick up on uh, that you've written about this week uh, is Solid State. I, I sort of have a, a bit of a history of this company because it was a fairly disastrous tip I made uh, uh, in 2015 on the back of uh, the, the company uh, having uh, this prisoner tagging contract with the Ministry of Justice that sort of ended up not really coming to fruition and the, and the shares uh, tanked. I mean, you, are we talking before we came on the, the show early and you say that the uh, the, the company has is, is changed shape a bit and that the order book where previously there have been some concerns obviously with the MOJ contract is now growing again. I mean, what's the latest with Solid State? The latest is fantastic. Right. Um, I put the readers in approximately a month ago, uh, £4.10 or thereabouts. Stock price now is about £5.40. I'm not saying buy it at this level. I'm saying running run profits if you've already got okay. it, if you bought a position... I spent, when I did due diligence on this, because it's not a company I'd covered before, um, I, I spent the best part of an hour and a half with directors uh, going through nitty-gritties mm. of each part of their business to the point that they were completely bored out of their mind to think, <laughs> but I wasn't. Um, and also, I, I found out what their client base was. So they've got 800 clients. Most of those are blue chips. Uh, some of those are military ones. So they've got some percent of their turnover is MOD um, for communication side. 
Um, they, they basically do industrial and rugged computers, battery power packs. They've got a distribution electronics business. And what I got from the um, CEO, who's also a shareholder, quite a chunky shareholder in the company, is that their distribution business, which is 30% of profits, um, is actually trading well ahead of the industry. So although the forecasts in the markets imply very modest growth in profits this year, they're just so lowball, this company's going to beat right. them. Um, and then I went through every other part of the business. So not just that they're in 10i business. So, for example, they're upgrading all the um, um, weather vanes for uh, the Met Office. Um, they've also got military contracts with the MOD. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a cracking business. Um, basically, they do what other companies don't really want to do or can't do, right. but they're happy to do it. Um, and they make a decent return from it. It's small, it's under the radar. Um, 16 times earnings may sound expensive now, um, but I can see some significant earnings upgrades, and I'd be happy to actually hold it if you've made your 30% return in the last month. Good stuff. Strong and growing order book, probably a good segue to your sector you've been writing about recently, Mark, and that's, um, that's defence. Um, we've We've had results for three of the big hitters already and uh, on the subject of the order book the biggest of the lot BAE saw a pretty whopping increase in their total order intake in the half year results to 10.7 billion pounds so what are BAE's customers buying mark and what are our reasons for buying BAE well it's it's obviously one of the UK's um, really quality uh, blue chips there and it's um it's a beta play on the the defense market as a whole and you could say that uh, that's becoming more favorable, has become more favorable over the last 18 months or so, particularly in the US, but also on in mainland Europe, less so in the UK and in the uh, all-important Saudi Arabian market because of, uh, as you well know, the, the oil price, the continued oil price slump. Uh, but generally, um, uh, defense spending is on the rise and is, is looking positive. So um, uh, Chris Woodburn, the new chief executive of BAE, is coming to a uh, a company with uh, rising orders uh, across um, uh, just about all of its uh, divisions and rising sales as well. There's some concern, well, not really concerned, but uh, the cyber intelligence uh, unit, there was a softening in revenues there, but I think that's just a, a timing issue there. Uh, BAA is looking at that particular part of the business as one of the real growth areas, and it's not uh, difficult to understand why. Rarely do you pick up a newspaper nowadays without a story relating to sort of... Uh, uh, hacking, uh, whether it be in the private sector or, in fact, intergovernmental. Um, do, do you think there's a risk there that they're, you know, they're potentially playing catch up a little bit with um, with with cybersecurity? As you know, historically, that's not been a big focus of the business, but now, well, they, they have, now they're investing. Well, they have actually been in it for for, for some time, but it, as you say, it hasn't been necessarily to the forefront. Mm. I mean, the, the unit in itself is small compared to the rest of the uh, the business, but in terms of the general defense market it, it's it's quite large so um you know ba are well positioned as they are pretty much across the board there um there's as i say most of the divisions um logged revenue increases during the period and uh, order uh, demand is up at uh, the electronic systems uh, division as well with sales are up slightly about five five uh, percent at constant currencies um but there's a um, there's a real second half waiting going on there because um, uh, deliveries of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter uh, are increasing now after something of a, a logjam. It's a very contentious uh, program, or it has been because of uh, 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 budget overruns. 
But now um, we're past that period of, um, for companies like BAE, past the period of the main um, uh, capital investment, and they're starting to uh, get real returns on that now. And, and plus, uh, a lot of the technical issues have been uh, resolved there too. And plus, they're going to um, make money from um, the F-15 upgrades. They've been in service now for, what, 30 years or more, but uh, it's been such a good... Uh, such a good fighter for uh, the U.S. Air Force and right. other air forces around the world that uh, um, we, we're seeing sort of a lot more activity there. Okay, I mean, conversely, uh, I mean, Cobham had results as well, um, and they they have multiple profit warning and, and rights issues. Uh, fame. I mean, we we've got them on a sell, BA on a, on a buy. I mean, what what do we see in the results um, this week, and and what's 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 keeping us bearish on the stock? Well, um, there were actually some hopeful signs during the week there. Underlying revenue held up, uh, constant currencies, and uh, orders crept ahead slightly as well. But um, unfortunately, with Cobham at the moment, uh, it has very little to do with the wider defence market. These are in-house problems because they uh, decide to uh, grow um, too quickly. Um, It's it's a common theme, actually, not just in defence. But um, it's a balancing act now. Management need to shore up the, the balance sheet and, but they're, while resolving sort of outstanding um, issues linked to owners' contracts, specifically the um, KC-46 uh, tanker aircraft program for the, uh, the U.S. Uh, Air Force. Uh, to give you some idea, anyway, they, they generated just under half a million pounds, um, or half a billion pounds, rather, um, from the latest uh, rights issue. That's, uh, that's the second one in about a year or so, and that allowed them to bring the um, net debt-to-cash profits multiple, or EBITDA, down to uh, 1.5, uh, which represents an improvement. But they're also forecasting now there's going to be increased net cash outflows over the next uh, 18 months, two years. So it's difficult to sort of uh, say whether... Um, you know what that debt position is going to look like uh, a year from now. They say that the provisions linked to some of these onerous contracts are uh, appropriate, to use their term at the moment, but you couldn't um, uh, rule out any uh, further adjustments as um, these legacy contracts are mined. And I think you raised the question about the nature of these rights issues and there's you know, some people maybe potentially looking into them, which is another bare point. Well, yes. I mean, there, there was there's there's an investigation underway at the moment. So, I mean, we obviously can't say too much uh, about that. But um, uh, linked to how that uh, information was released to the market and who knew what right. in, in advance. But uh, we we shouldn't really comment on that. I guess. Okay. Um, so, I mean, as uh, this week, as our you know our listeners would be aware, I mean, we're sort of waking up every morning hearing the latest bellicose rhetoric from um, both sides of the Pacific. I mean, there's the rising, it seems, at least prospects of some, you know, military confrontation between North Korea and the US. Does that naturally translate into, you know, either premium for defence stocks? And is that sort of calamitous uh, geopolitical standoff, you know, a kind of buy signal for defence shares? Well, I, I noticed that BAE's shares are down since the right. announcement as well. And I mean, there's, there's a whole debate out there being exactly... The, the effect that um, that uh, conflict has on uh, the economy in general and defence uh, companies in particular. But you've got to remember with a company like uh, BAE Systems, uh, for instance, that these are long-dated uh, sort of heavy-duty contracts. And so, you know, the, the, someone at the MOD is not just going to pick up the phone of now course, and say, yeah. you know, so, you know, it's spurious. I, I think the, the comments most this week as well, are both from uh, Washington and Pyongyang, 
Uh, were intended for domestic uh, consumption, really. I right. mean, the, 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 it's, it makes good uh, newspaper copy, but um, I'd be very surprised. How, how defence uh, and this, you know, the military risks which we're, we're seeing here might connect to, uh, you know, broader themes in, in the stock market. I mean, Simon, this is a point you, you made earlier that, I mean, this may not necessarily result in a military conflict, but we've got very, very toppy valuations in lots of equity markets at the moment. Could a risk-off investment switch cause some sort of uh, uh, correction this summer, do you think? I, I think there's a real chance it will, and I'm quite looking forward to it as well, because it offers potential to pick up bargains when the right. market has a good shakeout. Uh, we haven't had a correction that we normally get, you know, the sell in May, buy back in the autumn scenario. Um, the most the FTSE 100, FTSE 250 did was a 4% drawback. Then it rallied back to highs early this week. Um, what I'd say is that if we're going to have a sell-off, it's going to start in the States. Okay. Um, for example, if, if you look how the valuations of the S&P 500 are, the index is up 10% this year. Over the last 70 years since the Second World War, the normal PE ratio, the average for the PE ratio for the S&P 500 is just over 17. The current ratio, tw- this is trailing 12 months earnings, right. is 24. So it's a good 40% above the average. If you look at the Schiller, which is Robert Schiller, the Nobel Prize winning economist, his um, cycl- cyclically adjusted price per earnings ratio is 30. Mm. The average since the Second World War is 18 so it's more or less 60%, 70% above the average. Even more interesting, if you look at how certain companies in the S&P 500 have actually performed, a third of the index this year are actually in negative territory. Now, right. We're hitting record highs, but a third of the companies are not hitting record highs, are actually going backwards. Yeah. Um, 80% of the gains, or thereabouts, is down to less than 50 companies in the index. Mm. So it hasn't been a broad-based rally. What I would say is with valuations at the highest level, apart from uh, the dot-com peak in 2000 and the Wall Street crash in 29, um, and the VIX index, which is the Wall Street fear of gauge, it measures volatility on options um, at record lows, then it won't take very much in terms of geopolitical risk to actually cause a decent correction in the markets. Added to that, I suppose, turning the taps off easy money as well. Um, that that's the possibility. The the Fed are expected to make an announcement in September, but clearly, if there's a sell-off in equity markets, they'll probably hold back from doing something. But um, it'll be interesting to see how this pans out over the next few weeks. Right, good stuff. Well, I mean, we touched on monetary policy again there, Emma. You've been sitting there very patiently. We we uh, can we we did touch on uh, interest rates as well. If rates were to rise, one sector we think would be that would be uh, useful for is the banks. And uh, now that you've gone through the uh, you know the, the big fours results uh, so far this this result season, um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on which of the banks is either most reliant on on a in an uptick in in rates or uh, you know or would benefit the most from uh, from from tighter monetary policy um i would say um an obvious choice would be lloyd's bank right. um for a couple of reasons really um firstly in, in a similar way i guess to rbs and barclays um it has a very kind of sharp focus on domestic retail banking um that's its core business 
after its whole simplification program following the financial crisis. Um, now, during the first half of the year, actually, it did have some good numbers and its, its net interest margin um, actually increased from 274 to 2.82%, which is actually a fairly sizable increase when in prior years, um, the net interest margin has been flat or in decline, um, but that was only because of lower wholesale funding costs. Okay. So not any, you know, not any uplift in how how the margins they can actually make, um, and also because of their acquisition of MBNA, which is a higher margin business. Um, the other the other reason I would say Lloyd's um, would be more reliant is it has the larger share of the UK mortgage market than any of the other banks. And while you think that give them pricing power, in fact, they've been trying to maintain margins mm. um, at such a point that it's actually affected um, the amount of new business volumes, um, which have, have been in decline. Um and I guess in contrast to something like Lloyd's, you'd have HSBC, which is, is kind less of known exposed. as, yeah. which is less exposed. And it's known as kind of the last big universal listed bank, UK mm. listed bank, which obviously is more diverse in its activities, but also makes a lot of money um, in Asia. And the same, I, I, I'd say, would be for Standard Chartered. Okay. So and just picking out, uh, you know, a few of the trends from uh, from the Banks results season. I mean, one is capital ratios, which is obviously one of the, the key things we look at every time uh, we, you know, we look at their uh, voluminous uh, trading statements. Um, I mean, prior to HSBC's results coming out, you said that the, you know, the bank had been strong on capital, but not so much on income. Is that still the same picture? I would say, if you take the first part of that. Mm. Um, it's it's definitely strong on capital. It's improving it on its capital levels, which is is really key for the dividend um, for HSBC. Um, its common equity tier one ratio increased to fourteen point seven percent from thirteen point six. So again, another sizable increase, um, and that also meant that it's instigating another two billion dollar um, share buyback, which is obviously, I mean, one of the reasons you hold a HSBC is for that income. Um, the reason maybe more doubtful on on its income profile um i think i alluded to this in the income majors piece that mm. we did and that it differs from some other income stocks um in that it doesn't have you know unlike maybe some pharmaceutical companies things like that it doesn't have that really steady stream of income um so while it has that high yield you know like other banks it's incurred so many one off charges and also had to make so many provisions mm. and restructuring and loan impairments and things like that it was encouraging during the first half its restructuring charges um and loan impairments were actually down even though it did have to instigate more provisions for PPI, which seems to be the kind of monkey on the shoulder of right. all banks at the moment. But it, I would say overall its income did improve, but it, it still, it's, you know, it's more of a high risk kind of hold. Okay. And I mean, PPI, I mean, you said it's a monkey on the shoulder. I mean, you, you also described Lloyd's results as a bit of a groundhog day in that respect. I mean, are these PPI claims going to go away ever? Well, yes, is the short right. answer to that. Just because the government's, um, I think it's August 2019, okay. they've put um, a date on it, no new applications, and actually the FCA is going to start a, uh, a advertising campaign, so I think to try and get claimants out of the woodwork, basically. Um, Anyone who's been asleep for the last uh, six years. Then. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I'm sure all the banks are very, very happy about that because... Again, we had some kind of surprisingly high provisions for PPI from people like Lloyds and Barclays mm. uh, during the first half. Right. 
Um, and, and another one of the uh, the major banks, RBS. I mean, like uh, HSBC and Lloyd's. I mean, their their common tier one equity ratios moving upwards as well. But I mean, that's not enough. It seems like from your right up to inspire confidence, at least yet. Why is that? Yeah, um, it's more hope than confidence. Okay. Maybe um, they were again. They were a good set of results. In fact, across all the banks, they were, they were, they were pretty good sets of results. Um, income was up, and its risk weighted assets were down, which is obviously good. Litigation and conduct costs were down. Um, there's just for RBS for me. There's too many. It was always the bank with lots of unknown unknowns um, in terms of things like um, litigation. I mean, it's still kind of mired in. It's had some progress with its um, rights issue, the 2008 rights issue um, litigation. It's settled with I think, the vast majority of people now um, out of court, but it's still got that US litigation ongoing um, with the Department of Justice over its alleged mis-selling of US mortgage-backed securities um, during the financial crisis. So, that's still a big unknown and we've not really been able to quantify um, you know, how much that's really going to cost them. Another reason we, we don't have it on a buy is just because it has undergone a significant rally and now it's trading around the same level as something like HSBC, still with no prospect of a dividend. So why, why, would, you hold why would you buy into stock, it for okay. that reason, I think? Fair enough. And uh, I mean, we should just touch on Barclays as well. I mean, th- that seemed to me like a slightly mixed set of results compared to the others. I mean, they... A bit of weakness in uh, international trading and, and return on equity. I mean, what's going on? Yeah, these, actually, I would say maybe these were. I said most of the banks were quite positive, but I think perhaps Barclays was the the only one that was slightly disappointing. Okay. I think again, PPI, unsurprisingly, a lot higher than people expected, um, and that really affected profits for its core business. Progress, obviously, on the restructure. That was really great. The international business that you mentioned, um, yeah, profits were down there. But I think the, the more worrying thing was the kind of big increase in credit impairment charges. Um, that was up more than half to around £575 million. And they attributed that partly to a growth in delinquency delinquency rates um, for a US credit card business. That's all, always worrying, of course. But overall, um, I think because of the, the restructuring and the fact that it's trading around 0.7 times um, forecast net tangible assets, um, we have actually stuck with it on a buy. Okay. And obviously, if interest rates do go up, then this presumably would uh, attract some momentum into uh, into the sector. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. Right. Good stuff. Well, well, we've touched on, I think, just two of uh, many, many uh, sectors we have written about in this week's magazine. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Mark, uh, Simon and Emma for joining me this week. The Investors Chronicle magazine this week, it's a piece of cake, the right ingredients for the perfect portfolio. That is the cover feature that James Norrington and Kate Beardley have written. There's an accompanying podcast series on that. So click down in the feed if you want to hear James uh, interview some of the fund managers he spoke to for this piece. Uh, We've also got Algie Hall's high quality small cap stock screen. Uh, and plenty more. So that's a piece of cake. It's £4.90 in the shops this week. Thanks very much for listening.